Here we go. All right, well, welcome once again. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. And uh, I just want to begin by sharing with you, as I share with you a number of times, that uh, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and it was mainly in my childhood years uh, that I was there. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this, but when you grow up somewhere, you, in some cases, maintain an idealized memory of what it was. And it was just before I started high school when my family left San Francisco and we moved to Atlanta. Uh, and it was several years before I was ever able to return uh, to visit San Francisco. And truthfully, when I had the opportunity to do that, it was a, it was a real thrill to, to be able to do that. But something was different. While I still love the place, and to this day I still have a high degree of, of affection for, for San Francisco, everything wasn't quite as, as grand as I'd remembered. Uh, in fact, everything seemed uh, a little bit smaller, quite a bit smaller than I remember the street that I lived on. When I was a kid, I had this memory that it was such a, a big, grand, wide street, and that uh, we would play ball on that street and stick ball and all kinds of things like that. That sounds pretty old, I know. Uh, but our house, even, it had felt like a big, big house when, in fact, it was just a two-bedroom, one-bath home on this little narrow street. I remember we would ride our bikes everywhere, and it felt like we would ride our bikes for miles and miles and miles, and we would go miles away from home, when in reality, uh, everywhere we rode was, was, was all within about a mile or two radius. So that's still further than we uh, let our kids ride away from home nowadays, but uh, that's beside the point. So the point is, what, what, uh, what I remember being so grand and so big was actually in reality very small. But nonetheless, even though it wasn't exactly what I remembered, in some ways it was disappointing, it was still really wonderful to go to the place that I considered home for, for really a big chunk of the, the formative years of my life. It was good to go back home. Having said that, the concept of home, it can be a bit uh, nebulous. Uh, what we consider home, what we are fond of in terms of home is, is a little bit of a sliding scale. Here's what I mean. Anytime my family now comes back home from a, from a long trip, uh, we're home for about another week before what? We start planning our next trip away from home. We're planning our next trip that will take us away from home, and we're looking forward to it. We're looking forward to getting away from home until what? Well, we go away, we stay away for a little while, and then we start longing to get back home again. We're odd creatures, aren't we? Uh, we've been in this, uh, this study uh, this semester, uh, where we're examining, uh, examining specific accounts in the, uh, of the men and women of the Old Testament. And each, each week, we're looking for the fingerprints of Christ in these accounts. We're looking for the whispers of Christ in the Old Testament that point us to what Christ would do in the New Testament. And, and the person and book we're going to talk about today, as I mentioned in an email to you yesterday, was inspired by a question that I received from one of the members of, of this, uh, this Common Ground learning group. Uh, the question that was asked of me was this, is coronavirus an instrument of God's wrath? Is coronavirus an instrument of God's wrath? What an interesting question. And here's how I'm going to answer that. I'm going to answer that question by way of the prophet and book of Jeremiah. And as we look at Jeremiah, I want us to think about the concept of being home and going home because it's relevant to, to what Jeremiah wrote about and relevant to what we're, we're dealing with right now being impacted by this virus. So, so back to the idea of, of home. What do you think of when you think of home? What do you, well, what's home to you? You've heard it said, I'm sure, that home is where the heart is, right? 
Well, I'm going to suggest that it's something a little bit different. And I would suggest this is the case for everybody, for every single person on the planet. It's not just that home is where the heart is. It's more that home is where the heart finds rest. Home is where your heart can be at rest. Even when Tracy and I go uh, uh, away from home to somewhere where we feel totally welcome, like when we drive out of town to go see her parents, we always feel very welcome there. But even after a few days, we start longing for home. We, we miss our, 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 our bed and we miss our, our kitchen. We miss our local grocery store and everything that we know. But again, once we get home, are, are our hearts completely at rest at that point? Are we at that perfect spot of rest? No. Again, we start planning for the next time we can get out of town and, and rest and leave town. It's a sliding scale. This idea of home, we're, we're, we're going to unpack this idea a bit in, in, in the book of, uh, of Jeremiah as we continue. Now, real quick, this is one of the themes in Jeremiah, the book's author, uh, that Jeremiah is brokenhearted. He's the weeping prophet. He's a sad prophet because he mourns for God's people in their thick heads, okay, that they can't seem to honor the Lord, that the Lord is faithful to them, and they continually wander away from him, okay? Last week, we talked a little bit about uh, King David. And after the reign of King David was the reign of his son, King Solomon. And after the reign of, of his son was King Rehoboam. And it was under his reign, King Rehoboam, where Israel divided north and south. And what I want to do is show you a map of that real quick. Let's see, it's going to be on this page right here. So there it is. There's the, the kingdom of Israel. It was all this section here. And then under Rehoboam, it divided north and south. In the north, you had the kingdom of Israel. And in the south, you had the kingdom of Judah. In Jerusalem was here in the southern kingdom, okay? So you again, north and south. Um, and things didn't go well for either the north or the south after the split. It was in the year 722 BC that Israel was defeated and destroyed by Assyria. Okay, that was when the northern king, 722 BC. And then in the year 597, so a little more than 100 years later, 597 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah, where, uh, where, the, where Jerusalem and the temple were, that was conquered and defeated by Babylon. Okay, now for about the first 45 chapters of the book of, of Jeremiah, okay, for the, about the first 45 chapters, uh, Jeremiah's main focus is on his warnings to Judah, and he focuses primarily on the judgment coming to them, okay, because again, these are wandering people, all right, and in spite of his warnings, in spite of the judgment he, he told them was coming, they continued to engage in disbelief and, and disobedience, and, and so not only was Judah defeated by Babylon, that southern kingdom, but then many of the Jews were, were taken into captivity. They were exiled from Jerusalem and assimilated into the country and culture of the Babylonians. Now, if some of this seems familiar today, it should. You and I, it can be said, are a people of exile right now, okay? Though thankfully it's not under the same conditions that they faced. They were defeated in war uh, and, and many were physically removed from their homes and hauled away. You and I, well, we still get to be in our homes. In fact, for some of you, that's the only place you get to be. But like them, you, couldn't, you can't go to the temple, okay? They, they couldn't go to the house of the Lord. That's the part that feels a little familiar. You and I have been exiled uh, from gathered worship. Okay, and, and I've talked uh, with a lot of you over the last several weeks, and we all agree. I think we're all at this point right now. It stinks, right? It stinks bad. We're ready for this virus to go away, and, and we want to get back to normal. 
So, so here's where the lines of comparison come in between what Israel went through back then, or Judah, and, uh, and what we're going through now. God's people were thick-headed. They were thick-headed and disobedient, and therefore God allowed them to be defeated by their enemies and hauled away in exile. So the question naturally uh, comes up, are we in exile because we're thick-headed and disobedient? Is God mad at us, right? That's what we want to know. Don't you know the people of Judah, when they were carted away from their homes, don't you think they asked the very same question? You know, they must have asked, why is God allowing this? Why did God do this? Is God mad at us? All right. So this is from uh, uh, Jeremiah 1. We want to read this in uh, Jeremiah's calling as a prophet. This is Jeremiah 1, 15 to 16. And it says this, Jeremiah 1, 15 to 16. It reads, For behold, I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come. And everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls, around and against all the cities of Judah, and I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. You see, it was God who brought the invaders. He used them as his instruments of judgment against his people for forsaking them. And it was God who removed the people from their beloved promised land. God did that. The Jews were removed from their home. Their hearts were in a state of unrest. And, and not only were the Jews being removed from Jerusalem to, to captivity in Babylon, but they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem too. So not only were they removed from their, their homes, add insult to injury, the temple was destroyed as well too. Is, is that what's happening to us right now too? To answer that question, we have to understand why he was doing what he was doing back then. What was he doing? What was he doing? Hold on to that thought for one more minute, okay? Because that's what we're trying to ask here. Is, is what was going on back then the same thing that's happening now? There was uh, one instance. Uh, I must have been in the third grade. And not too far from where we lived in California, there was a Porsche dealership. Okay. To tell you the truth, I don't know what brought us to that part of the town, but my family had some time to kill, so we wandered into the Porsche dealership and started checking things out. Well, it wasn't too long after we arrived in said dealership that we were approached by a salesman, of course. You would expect that in any car dealership, right? But it wasn't so much that he approached us, but what he said when he approached us. He said, and note, note the carefully chosen words here. He said, is there something I can help you all with? Do you hear the subtext to that question? If we were at a Honda dealership, the salesperson would have said, hey, great day, isn't it? What can I do for you? Or what would it take to get you in that car today, right? But this guy said, is there something I can help you with? Is there something? Is there something in the world I can help you with? Because whatever that something is, it certainly isn't a Porsche. You see, I don't know what it was, but he sniffed us out right away that we weren't there to buy a Porsche. We didn't belong there. He didn't even have to talk to us. Somehow he knew we weren't Porsche people. Perhaps it was my dirty shoes or my unkempt hair, but whatever it was, we weren't the target market. Now, my dad, who knows a lot about cars, he could have said any number of things. My dad could have started talking about horsepower or carburetors or turbochargers or, or power to weight ratios. He could have said any number of things just to show him that we were serious about being where we were, even though we weren't. And I, I'm just waiting to see what my dad's comment is going to be to unleash on this snobby salesman. Here he goes. He says, my dad asked the guy, 
So uh, how many miles per gallon does this car get? To which the salesperson replies, um, if you're concerned about gas mileage, Porsche is probably not the vehicle for you. And my dad said to him, okay, we'll see ya. All right, it was in that moment where we realized and asked ourselves, what are we doing here? We don't belong here. What are we doing here? We're not at home here. We're, we're fish out of water, we're out of place, right? The Jews were in exile, okay? They must have been asking themselves the very same thing, right? You know, what are we doing here? We don't belong here, this is not our home. Why are we here? Our hearts are not at rest here. They long for the rest they had at home. But, but as an aside, okay, think about this, okay? They're, they're away from home, they're longing to be back home. But again, if they were somehow to get home, if somehow they were, they were just transported back home to Jerusalem right on the spot, would they really find true rest once they got there? Would that be the cure-all? Cure -all? You know, longing for home, back home, does that fix everything? Or would they wander like they did for hundreds and hundreds of years before this captivity? You know the answer to that question, right? They wandered before, during, and after captivity. They were wanderers, okay? So that should tell you something. That alone should tell you something. God's ultimate objective for his people wasn't about getting them back to Jerusalem, okay? Listen to me, listen to me, hear this. Getting them out of captivity and back home wasn't the ultimate objective. Getting back home at rest was analogous to something else. It was a pointer to something else. You see where I'm going here, right? Okay, why were they in Babylon? Yes, we already established the fact that they were there as, as God's judgment was upon them, but is, is that all there is of the story? Well, they had it coming, right? They disobeyed, they disobeyed and they got punished, end of story. Is that it? Is that really it? God sent them into captivity just because they were bad people. Is that it? Or is God doing something else? Is God trying to point us to something else through that captivity, right? Just like every other account we've looked at in the Old Testament series, yes, there's always an immediate understanding of what's going on in the narrative. But it's not just about what's going on in the immediate sense. Rather, we have to ask ourselves, what is the bigger picture that God is pointing us to? To what or to whom is God pointing his people? I bet you have a guess, right? This isn't just about God's people being bad, so they had to be punished. There's more going on here, okay? Okay, so you have to start to notice this. If what exile meant in the Old Testament wasn't just God saying, okay, you've been mad now, bad now, so I'm going to punish you. If that's not all it was, if it was a pointer to something else, right? Ultimately a pointer to something much bigger, to someone else, do you think that's what God is doing now? Is, it, is, is that what's happening now? You've been bad people, so here's a virus. Or maybe there's something else going on here too, right? Let me read for you uh, a verse in uh, Jeremiah 31. This is Jeremiah 31. Uh, let's see, 31. Uh, this is where the prophet is telling us this weeping won't last forever, right? He says this, this is Jeremiah 31, 14. What is Jeremiah trying to alert us to here? Okay, 31, 14 to 16, we'll read the whole thing. He says, yes, you're in a state of unrest, but this unrest won't last forever. Okay, he says, verse 14, I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Don't despair, guys. That's what Jeremiah is saying. This, 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 this is going uh, to, to end, and your hearts will find true rest. Happy days will be here again, but listen to this. 
not just because they're going to go home. What else is he saying? Verse, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That verse tells us Rachel is weeping for her children because they are no more. But then we're told in the next verse, don't worry. Don't worry, though. It says, verse 16, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Okay? So, what does it mean when it says Rachel is weeping for her children? Okay? There are three places in the Bible where we read about Rachel weeping for her children. All right? The first is in, all the way back in Genesis 35. Jacob was bringing his family home. He had been in exile. Coincidence, right? He couldn't wait to bring his family home. But on their way, they arrived at a place called Ramah. They're away from home, away from their city, and they had to stop because Rachel was pregnant and she had to give birth. As she gave birth and as she looked upon her son, she looked at him and she knew she was dying, okay? She was dying in labor. She was dying in labor so her son could live, okay? She was dying in labor so her son could live. She named him and wept and died. And the next time we hear about Rachel weeping is right here in Jeremiah 31. Years later, what, what happens in Ramah? Okay. The Babylonians have, have crushed Jerusalem. They've killed people and taken prisoners. They brought them to Ramah. Ramah was a, uh, a staging station where it was a, a transit camp uh, for people on their way to, to Babylon in exile. It was sort of a camp of prisoners who were going to be taken away. And you can only imagine the atrocities that were happening there as they were taken from their mothers and as children taken from their mothers and, and all the weeping that must have been taking place. You see the parallels? In Genesis, Rachel is in exile, mother separated from child as she weeps. Here in Jeremiah, mothers in exile separated from their children as they weep. So why? Why is this happening? Why is God doing this? Simply because, well, they had it coming. They disobeyed, so don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Is that why mothers are being separated from their young? Or is God pointing us to something else? Okay? He has to be pointing us to something else. Okay? He has to be. Uh, because, as, as, uh, because he administers uh, judgment, right? But he also says in the next verse, they shall come back. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There's redemption to be had here, he's saying. He's carrying this out with a view to redemption. Now, the third time, the third time Rachel's tears are mentioned in the Bible are in Matthew chapter 2, verse 18, okay? Where he quotes this exact verse from Jeremiah 31. But then Matthew tells us this verse is fulfilled. In Jesus, this verse, Jeremiah 31, is fulfilled. How so? I thought this was just a narrative about Jews behaving badly. What's going on in Matthew chapter 2? Herod is killing the young infant boys in Bethlehem, so he's trying to kill the Messiah who supposedly has been born in Bethlehem. So Jesus, in order to escape that, his parents go into exile. They go into exile. And if you follow Jesus throughout his, his entire life, you'll see that he was always in exile. Remember when Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the son of man doesn't have a place to lay his head? He had no place to go. He was almost always homeless. He was always in exile. And then finally, at the end of his life, he's headed for Jerusalem. He's headed back home, right? In, in, in Luke 19, we read that when he saw Jerusalem, he wept over it. 
Matthew says that when he wept, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wish I could have taken you under my wings. That's the language of a mother bird. It's Jesus Christ, the Messiah, weeping like a mother. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate Rachel. She's the ultimate Rachel who's going to die in labor so that we can be born again. He, he's going to be separated so his children can live. We're told in, in Hebrews 13 and other accounts in, in the Gospels that, that Jesus was crucified where? Inside the city or outside the city? It was outside the city. He was cast out. He was sent into exile, right? He went into the ultimate exile. The Father cast him out so that we could be brought back in. He took what we deserve. So what do we deserve? We deserve exile. We deserve separation from the Father, okay? We deserve exile, and Jeremiah makes that clear, but he also points out that someday someone would step into our shoes and take what we deserve, okay? You see what's going on in Jeremiah? It's, it's not just that God is punishing people who are bad, though it is that, okay? He's telling a story. Here's what you deserve when you're bad, separation. You deserve exile. You deserve to be kicked out of your home. You deserve to be separated, okay, ultimately from God. But you shall come back to the land of the enemy. You shall come back from the land of the enemy. How? You see this? You see what's happening in the Old Testament when God's people are in exile? Uh, it, it, it was like looking through a, through a, through a peephole in your, your front door. You know how many of you probably have a, a people? I want you to go to your, your people at your front door after this and, and, and look through it, even though, especially if someone isn't there standing on the other side of that door, what does it look like? You look through this very small opening. You get this very small opening and you see something. It's not a perfect perspective. It's way off, but you get an idea. It's a sense of what's going on be, beyond the door. This is what's happening in the Old Testament. People are in exile. It's a hint. It's a shadow of something else that will take place in the distance an analog, okay, a representation of the ultimate thing that would happen. This is why, this is why Matthew is saying that uh, this verse is fulfilled, because yes, whatever punishment you deserved, you know, whatever, whatever punishment you deserved was, filled, was, uh, was dished out, justice was served, justice was carried out, only instead of it falling on your shoulders, as it should have, it was placed squarely on the shoulders of Christ. And because of that, you shall come back from the land of the enemy and return home. Jeremiah tells us, he's telling us here, th this is what's required of you. Here's what you deserve for breaking the covenant, exile. And then Jeremiah tells us, but he's gonna bring you back. And again, did they come back? Yes, the people of, of, of God got to come back to Jerusalem after 70 years. But the most amazing thing, that's not, that's not ultimately what Jeremiah was talking about. Jeremiah was saying, yes, you'll get to come back, but it's not the fact that you'll get to come back. It's what the coming back points to, okay? The fact that you'll ultimately get to come back home where your heart belongs, where your heart was made to be at rest in Jesus Christ, okay? Have you ever seen those little models? I was watching a movie this week, and, and they, they showed this, this life-scale model of what this, uh, this uh, shopping mall was going to look like or something like that. It was a small model of what was going to take place in reality. This is what the Old Testament is. This is what captivity is. This is what Israel is. It's a small model of the church, okay, of what would happen ultimately on a bigger scale, all right? That's what's happening. Do you know why my hometown, hometown seems smaller to me than I remembered, like that model scale? Do you know why even when we're at home, we try and find time to get away from home, and then we get glad all over again when we travel and, and feel good to be back at home? Our hearts are looking for rest. 
our hearts are looking for home. And as much as we try and find the exact right place we can call home here on earth, we won't ever, we won't, we won't ever quite find it. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that small model, isn't really home, okay? God is the home that we're missing. God is the home that, that, somehow, that somehow we remember, that we, we long to get back to. We long to get back to Eden, walking in the cool of the day. That's what we remember. That's what we're trying to get to. And we, we can't quite get there. We'll try anything and everything to, to find a substitute to that comfort, but, but we won't find it. When he pulls us back, when he pulls us in, that's the only place where our hearts will truly be at rest. Okay? So with that, back to the question we started with. Is coronavirus an instrument of God's wrath? Is God punishing us like he punishes people in the Old Testament? Okay, now, before, before I give you my final answer, in one respect, we have to answer, yes, we do live in a fallen world. And every bad thing that happens is a result of Adam's original sin. We live under that curse, okay? But we often think of, of, uh, that a virus that strikes us or a tornado that hits us because is because we've wandered too far away from God's moral law. And if we as a society or a country had just stuck a little closer to it, God wouldn't have allowed this to happen. We've wandered too far away, just like they did in the Old Testament. And to that, I say, no, pump the brakes a little bit here. Okay. Again, we have to ask, small model, what was he doing in the Old Testament? Was he just punishing his people for being bad? No, he was pointing us. Ultimately, what he was doing, he was pointing us to Jesus. He was painting a picture that told us we are bad people who deserve to be exiled, but he would bring us back. How? Through Jesus. You'll get to go home to the ultimate Jerusalem in Jesus Christ. He would be exiled so that you wouldn't. That's what God was pointing us to back then. So what's he doing now? Is he, is he just mad at people so he's punishing them with a virus? Maybe, just maybe. Just like back in Jeremiah's day, his ultimate objective was to point people to Jesus. Could it be that's what he's doing now too? Again, like we've said over and over in this study, the whole Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to the very end is one story, and that story is Jesus Christ. Every page of every, or every word on every page is meant to serve as a pointer to Jesus Christ, okay? And more than anything, more than anyone, what is he asking of his people? What is he asking of his people right now during a time like this? In uh, Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 7.14, uh, there's a verse that says this. 2 Chronicles uh, 7.14, many of you know this well, and you've probably even heard it used a lot lately, but we're going to talk a little about really what it means here and if we can apply it. Uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14 says this. Tell me if you've heard this verse before. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Okay? Well, you see, we take that verse and we'll claim that verse for our own land, right? For our own world today. But even with that verse, you have to ask yourself, what is God asking of his people? He wasn't asking his people here, pray harder, get on the straight and narrow, and then I'll heal you. No, even in that verse, the healing he's talking about ultimately is Jesus. Okay, but I also want you to notice something about that verse. He says, if my people, if my people, okay, take note of that, if my people. He doesn't say, if my nation or if my Israel. He says, if my people. 
God has always been about the business of restoring his people, his church. Israel was always a smaller scale model of what the church is now. It was always projecting out, this is a smaller scale of what the church will ultimately be. Okay, God has always been about the, the business of restoring his people, his church. Okay, he was never interested in making a great nation. He's interested in making a great church. So really, we can't take that verse from 2 Chronicles and apply it to our current situation. It's not a straight line of connection. However, that verse does apply from a sanctification standpoint. Again, he's always been about his people back then, and now he's interested about in his people, in sanctifying his people, purifying his church. In that verse from 2 Chronicles, he was calling upon his people to pray. I think he's calling upon his people to pray here too. I think he's definitely using this virus to sanctify his people. And we need, to, we need to be sure we understand this. Sanctification is not the same as judgment. Sanctification is not a reflection of God's wrath. It's a reflection of his love. God's people are finished with judgment. All the judgment that we faced, that we deserve, was placed on Christ. So now, any remaining struggle that we have with sin is a means of sanctifying us, drawing us closer to him and making us more like his son. So with that knowledge, what do we do with the, the situation that we're in now? How do we behave? Well, here, here's where we can take a cue from Jeremiah, okay? Uh, and I'm gonna get to, Luke has a comment here, and I'm gonna come back to this in just a second, Luke. This is a great comment because he's pulling in Romans 8. Uh, okay, let's take a cue from Jeremiah first. As long as we still have struggle with, with, with uh, sin in our hearts, we, we won't be at rest. We'll never truly be at rest this side of heaven, so what do we do? Do we just ride it out? And this is yet another important theme in Jeremiah. So what do we do in the meantime while, while we're away from home, while, while we await the time when our hearts will truly be at rest? This is what Jeremiah said to do in the meantime. This is Jeremiah 29.7. Jeremiah 29.7 says... But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Did you catch that? Don't resist. Don't, don't, don't resist. Do the opposite of resist. Okay? Uh, seek its welfare. This is not a storm to weather. Don't just grit your teeth and ride it out. Plant roots. Did you catch the fact that he said to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you? It wasn't the Babylonians who brought them out of the promised land. It was God himself. Don't resist what's going on. Seek its welfare. Contribute. Plant crops. Raise families. Get comfy. Make it like home. So what is this saying on a bigger scale? What do we understand from that? Why are you here? Why are, where, why are you where you are? Why are we in exile? Are we being punished because we've been bad? No. God put us here. It means there's something to be done while we're here. And, and where God places you, he places a purpose for why he put you here. He's not asking you to weather a storm. He's asking you to thrive in it, to do well. Why? Why? So that you too, so that you too can be a pointer to Christ. Just like back in the Old Testament, everything that happened there was ultimately a pointer to what would happen on the cross and, and, and the resurrection thereafter. Same thing for you. Everything that you do, everything that you go through should be a pointer to Christ, to, to his cross and to what he did for you. And, and it's not just what's going on in the moment. 
okay? It's what the pointer is pointing us to. You point to the fact that no, your heart is not settled, but one day it will be. One day it will be at perfect rest, and we're going to work for that day until it gets here. We're going to be transformed bit by bit into the image of Christ until one day we will perfectly reflect his image back to him. Sometimes God takes you away from home because he wants to show you his grace, not because he's punishing you, but because he loves you. All right. Now, let me, let me swing over to the comment here that, that Luke had uh, that he shared in the chat window a moment ago. Uh, and he sent it to me, but I'll share it with you all. There's a reality of seeing a true Romans 8, okay? He works all things for the good of those who love him. When we feel and see more clearly the pain of being apart from God and the reality of the fall through a circumstance like a pandemic, when temporary things are revealed as foundations of sand, we are able to know and desire the foundation of rock that is the only thing that lasts and saves. Again, it's all a pointer to Christ. And again, if, if the, the sandy ground beneath us that maybe where we got a little too comfortable starts to feel a little loose right now, maybe, maybe God sends something like this to, to once again firm, firm us up and, and realize where our, our feet are steady and our feet are only steady uh, on the rock of Jesus Christ. Now, is that a means of, of, of God being angry at us? Or is that a means of God loving us and, and molding us and shaping us into the image of his son? It's the latter. That's all, again, I can't emphasize it enough. For the Christian, your punishment is done. No more punishment. That's it. Jesus took all the punishment that, that you'll ever have to face, that you'll ever have to deserve, and he put it squarely on his shoulders. So that means anything that remains, any struggle that remains therein, is now just a means of molding you and shaping you and crafting you into the image of his son. That's what it is. That's what it is. Are there any other comments or questions or, or anything that we can uh, address uh, while uh, we're still gathered here uh, together virtually. Um, don't see any coming through the chat window, but if you want, you can, you can do that right now. Um, we'll give it a couple uh, minute or so, but it is, we're about quarter till. And again, if you have any further questions on that, you know, I'm always happy to answer questions uh, about that. But the thing that I want you to take away is that again, you, you can't draw a one for one comparison and say, God was mad at his people back then, and so he put him into exile. Maybe that's what he's doing now. Again, what was his purpose? What was he doing back then? What was he doing back then? He was ultimately pushing us and showing us a big picture, a big model that is Jesus Christ. That's what he was doing. So he never was just in the business of, ah, you did a bad thing. That's it. That's your punishment. No, it's always a pointer to Jesus Christ. Everything, even, even the situation that we're in now, it points us to Jesus Christ. All right, uh, with that, uh, we, uh, thanks, thanks, Spencer. Uh, we will uh, put a pin in it and um, we'll head out over to worship. You got about 15 minutes now. You can log off of here and log back onto them. Let me go ahead and close this in prayer and, uh, and we will be uh, dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, once again, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how complete and comprehensive it is. And thank you that uh, there's so much goodness in it, so much mercy, so much grace. Father, I'm just so affirmed and encouraged by the fact that you're not just a God that is sitting up in heaven wanting to slap our hands for whenever we step out of line, but rather your ultimate goal here, your ultimate goal in, in, in my heart, in the hearts of, of the people that are, that are reading your words here today and, 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 uh, and, and claim the, the promises of Christ is to, to make us more like him. Thank you, Father. 
thank you that that's the God that you are, a God of full of grace, full of compassion, full of mercy, and God that loves us so much. Help us to reflect that each and every day as we go about our business, uh, whether that's at home, whether that's out in public, whether it's with family or friends. Help us all to be pointers to Jesus Christ as we long for the day when our hearts will find uh, true rest. Make us productive in the meantime and help us to take as many people as we can and point them as many people as we can back to your son, Jesus. We pray these things in the name of Christ, and it's for his sake that we pray them. Amen. Thank you all for joining me, and we'll see you in worship.